Hey everyone, before we get started with the show, I have a couple of administrative type things. And also I wanted to thank our newest supporters. That's Mike and Elliot, both of whom became monthly sustaining supporters through Patreon this week. Thank you very much, guys. We really do appreciate it. Now for the administrative things, I actually have two of them. First off, if you're a regular listener, you know that for quite a while we ran ads on the show. But you made it clear that you wanted an ad-free experience, which, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. I totally get that. It's so much better without ads. And so we decided to experiment with an ad-free format, which we've been doing now since early February. Now, this was a big financial gamble for us because 80% of our total revenue was being generated by ads. We hope that we could, you know, if not replace all of that with listener support, that's probably unrealistic, but at least make up enough of it to keep the show going. Well, it's been three months now with the ad-free format, and we have had some increase in listener support, but unfortunately, it hasn't been nearly enough to keep our ad-free model sustainable in the long term. Now, we still want to keep the Politics Guys ad-free, if at all possible, because, well, that's what you've told us you want, and we do the show for you. So if making the show, keeping the show ad-free, sorry, matters to you, we we hope you'll consider supporting the show if you haven't already. And and really, it won't take much either. If even a a small minority of you decide that an ad-free experience is worth, uh, I don't know, like even a quarter an episode even, we'd be in really good shape. We'd probably be all set. So if you're interested in that, to support the show, you know the deal. Just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or click on the support link on the menu at politicsguys.com. And as a way of saying thanks, we're starting a special Sustaining Supporters After Show podcast, where every week, starting in fact this week, we're going to be talking about things like well, the stories we couldn't fit in the regular show, our semi-non-political thoughts of the week, and really just kind of whatever happens to come up. It's going to be a lot more laid back, unstructured sort of thing. I I think it should be a lot of fun. I I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, And sustaining supporters will get a special private RSS feed. And all you'll have to do is just enter that into your podcast app of choice. And boom, you'll be all set. You'll be able to listen to it just like the regular Politics Guy show. Finally, one more item before we get to today's show. Uh, As regular listeners know, in addition to our weekend news analysis show, we have a midweek episode. Now, most of the time, it's me interviewing an author or an activist or someone in the world of politics. I, I really enjoy doing these interviews. They are a blast for me. But even though I try to talk to people from various ideological orientations, it's just not the same thing as the sort of bipartisan analysis that's really at the heart of the politics, guys. And a number of you have pointed that out, and I agree. So I've decided to spin off the interviews into their own show, which is going to be called Politics Plus. Now, the reason for the plus is that while my focus will still be on politics, I'll also be talking to people about like history, economics, culture, and a lot of stuff in the behavioral and social sciences. At least that's the plan for right now. We'll still be doing a midweek show here on The Politics Guys, but with the interviews as a separate podcast, we'll be able to do more listener mail shows, listener commentaries on that, as well as those deeper dives into specific policy issues that we did a lot more of in the past before I started really ramping up the interviews. So, for instance, we're hoping to do a show on U.S. policy in the Middle East, which I think should make for a great deeper dive show. 
I'm currently in the process of putting together a website and all the other things I'll need for the Politics Plus podcast. One really important thing I don't yet have is a logo. You know, like the thing you see in your podcast app, like the Capitol Building logo we have for the Politics Guys. Now, I am, without a doubt, no artist or graphic designer, but if you have any talents in that area and you'd like to help out by trying your hand at, you know, designing a logo for this show, I would love to see it. I would love the help. You can send any questions or logo ideas, what have you, to me at mike at politicsguys.com. Thanks very much. And now, on to today's show. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jay. How are you today? I'm good. You know, before we start the show, I wanted to mention something. A few listeners have suggested that instead of kind of plunging right in after that intro that we always do, my two-sentence, 45-word introduction there, maybe we could maybe sort of ease into things with a little bit of, I don't know, chatter or banter or, or something like that. I guess other podcast, well, other podcasts, some of them do that sort of thing. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, well, you know, we did that. At, I think we did in our, our initial data when we very first started this, that's like everyone uh, said, no, cut the chatter, just go, uh, uh, <laughs> just, just, just give us the news. You know, yeah, they did. In fact, that, that's, a, that, I, I had forgotten about that. That was, of course, that was back when we had a few hundred people maybe at the very beginning, but, but, you know, I thought maybe what we could do was just leave it up to listeners. So, uh, if, if listeners, if you have a, you know, a strong opinion or a semi-strong opinion about this either way, we, we'd like to hear because uh, we, you and I, Jay, we certainly can chatter, banter, what have you. Not, for not just meaningless chatter. I no, mean, not at all. Of course chatter. not. What we say is always filled with import and, and you know, but, uh, but yeah, if you have, if you have any thoughts on that, just, just let us know. And I guess we sort of did kind of a pre-show kind of chattering, bantering thing, though it was to a very important end, I guess. So again, if you want to, if you want to chime in on this, just send us an email at mail at politics, guys. Com. All right, on to today's show. So our top story today, our first story today is sort of the news that we knew would be coming anyway. At least we had a pretty good idea that it was going to be in the works. And that, of course, is the Iran deal. More specifically, President Trump's announcement that the United States is pulling out of the deal, which he called a horrible one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. And he went on to say that it didn't bring calm, it didn't bring peace, and it never will. And, you know, it's an assessment that, well, essentially, every other signatory to the deal most definitely disagrees with. Though I should point out that Israel, Saudi Arabia, and a number of Iranian hardliners were all hoping that President Trump would do exactly what he ended up doing. And this doesn't end the multilateral agreement, but it does make it a lot tougher to keep it going because not only will the U.S. be reintroducing its own sanctions, the withdrawal denies Iran and any company doing business with Iran access to U.S. financial markets, which almost all major deals go through at one point or another. And, you know, European leaders are currently working with Iran to keep the deal together, but now it's a lot less economically compelling with the U.S. out of it. So, Jay, I'm wondering, you know, a couple things. First off, from your perspective, why did President Trump 
pull the U.S. out of the deal? I mean, what isn't in it that he wants, uh, and or maybe what is it that in it that he doesn't want? And do you agree with getting the U.S. out? Um, you know, a couple of things. One, I, 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 I don't think that that Trump is is wrong. <laughs> it's a, the terrible deal. Um, I think he could have maybe handled it better as far as just the the we're we're out. Um, maybe lay more groundwork uh, diplomatically for something else. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure about that, but on, on the merits of the deal, I, I think Trump is absolutely right. I think there's evidence and, and let's, let's go back. I mean, I guess the, the value of this deal, uh, to the U S to the West, uh, is the idea that the Iranians, uh, will not be, uh, moving forward with building a, a nuclear weapon for at least 15 years. So, to the extent there is any benefit to the West, the benefit to the Iranians is that uh, they get money, uh, money that had been held up, uh, frozen in, in U.S. bank accounts, uh, plus a relief from sanctions uh, that prevented them from from uh, selling and, and, and buying throughout the world. Um, so the, the problem is that the deal is, is sort of front-weighted towards Iran. Uh, Iran is essentially getting the money up front. Uh, the West is getting a promise that they will not continue to build nuclear weapons. And there was sort of sort of other pieces sort of implicit in that, uh, in that you're not going to threaten your neighbors. You're not going to uh, uh, test ballistic, ballistic missiles, uh, writing death to Israel on them, um, and so forth. So can I just ask a question here just really quick before you go yeah. on? Um, just, to, just to clarify, when you say that Iran is getting the money up front, you mean that the assets that are actually their money in assets that were frozen in the United States decades ago? Is that what you meant Correct. by getting the money up front? So Correct. it's not like they're getting new money. They're getting their money back, essentially. Well, okay, right. I just want to, okay. Unless, unless you want to make the argument they, <clears throat> they forfeited, well— uh, you can make an argument that that money belonged to a, a prior government and uh, uh, was was stolen by force uh, by the, the the current government. You mean um, in the revolution and so forth, right? Okay, okay. Uh, so, but yeah, it, it's it's there is essentially old money that had just been been being held sitting in a bank, uh, for lack of a better right way of, of phrasing it, and then the new money, which is based on on new commerce and, and sanction relief. Um, they got that. Uh, they got it. A lot of it in cash, um, which again the Iranians promised. Uh, not so much in the agreement, but to their their people and to the world that we're going to use this to help rebuild our infrastructure, to modernize our country. Uh, it's going to be super. We're going to fill the potholes. We're going to fix the bridges. Um, what they did instead with it was plowed it into supporting uh, Hamas. Uh, and other terrorist groups uh, to further destabilize the region. Um, and most notably, I mean, their their current adventures uh, in Syria are being funded by by this uh, uh, by by their their newfound cash. So I, it, to me, it, it's hard if if the idea is that um, we've got a you know this is somehow getting us peace. Uh, I think Trump's right, and it, it's not. We've essentially, uh, they're taking more money to to do more belligerent things. Um, the second point is uh, we don't really even know if they are agreeing to the uh, non-proliferation portions. Um, oh, I totally Israelis. disagree. 
I, I mean, on that point, I'm going to push oh. back hard because the inspection regime is just incredibly intense. And we we know with uh, about as much certainty as you can ever know that they are not doing that sort of thing. I mean, that's if you if you read about the details of the inspections, I mean, they are keeping their end. So it's one thing to say that the agreement was a was a bad agreement that we can I think you make, you know, at least I don't necessarily agree on everything, but I think you make a case. But in terms of them not honoring the agreement that they signed, everyone essentially is saying that they are, in fact, honoring the agreement. We just decided it's no longer a good agreement for us. Well, no, I, I would say the Israelis disagree. No, the Israeli, even the and, Israelis and put, don't disagree. Together, no, and I, mean, I have put together some some compelling evidence that Iran is, oh, is cheating. Oh, come on. It's no, no, it's not about cheating. If you look at their quote-unquote compelling evidence, it's about past actions. Their evidence has nothing to do with what Iran has done since the agreement has been signed. So that's a, that's a total red herring. They are, they, are, they are complying with the agreement. And so we just want to get out of it because it's not a good agreement for us. And again, that's, that's a different issue. But saying that they're not honoring the agreement, that's just, that's just bunk. All right. I'll, I'll just I'll I'll let you I'll let you have that. And, um, uh, you know, but again, let's let's uh, let's put it this way. The agreement, even if, if you, we just want to go back to say we think it's a bad agreement for the U.S. Sure. Uh, that's that's. And the other thing I, th- I think we need to, to hit on is that this this is a tr- this is not a treaty. This was just an, an agreement. Um which makes it a little bit of a, a strange animal uh, in terms of, of that it's not the law of the United States. It's not the uh, any really sort of international law. Right. Uh, yeah. This was so. I mean, that's. I think we we make that point too that this was sort of put together on sort of shaky ground, um, uh, and and I think there's something there's something to that that. Uh, ought the the United States people uh, to be governed by an agreement uh, that was that was not approved or not ratified? Well, then by we do it all the time, Senate. though. Executive agreements sure. are, and it just means that the president has the authority to pull out of them essentially whenever whenever he wants, and that's that's fine. But you know, I, I want to, yeah, exactly. I, I want to get to one point actually of of agreement with you and with President Trump here is that you know I I agree that the things that the administration wants here are good things. You know, they want to crack down on missile development, you know, and that's that's a good thing. Certainly they want uh, Iran to interfere less in the wars in Syria and Yemen. And I think that's a very good thing. And they I, also, I might even say a goal interfere. Not at all. In, in, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, you take but still you take what you can get missiles at any other countries. Right. And also yeah. they want no sunset on the uh, on the uh, nuclear uh, material, nuclear proliferation. Those are all good things. Absolutely. And so this kind of comes back to a point that you sort of hinted at earlier is that there is a way to deal with these things and just kind of pulling out. That's that that seems to be the kind of the Trump strategies. Well, again, and I talked right. about this. I think he's going to walk away from the table. Exactly. Right. Take my ball and go home. And the problem with that, as we talked about last week a little bit, from my view, is that not only does it damage U.S. credibility, you know, when people saying, well, are we going to sign, a, you know, an agreement with you? Well, what's to say in a couple of years you're going to withdraw from that agreement? But also, it makes it a lot easier for other countries to do the same thing, just kind of citing our example. So this really kind of potentially 
not, I'm not get overly dramatic, but it certainly doesn't help to stabilize the international regime. If anything, it goes the other way. And that just is kind of how President Trump works. We've seen it with, with at least threats of it, with NAFTA, with the Paris Accords. Everything is a one-time only. I'm going to get the maximum leverage I can on this deal. And I just think that's a really bad long-term strategy, even if you agree with what the president wants to accomplish. And, and I just said, I certainly think all of those things are laudable things. Uh, no, and, and, and I'd say you're, you're not wrong there. Um, I think there may have been other, other paths, um, or maybe we should have exhausted other paths uh, before we just said we're walking out. Um, but you're right. That is, this is the Trump style. This is the, the, the sort of, um, to sort of focus a crisis, uh, to some extent. And I, maybe I, maybe I'm more stating this by calling it a crisis. Um, but, but the, the Trump style of negotiation is to raise tensions to say, oh, this is it. We're walking away, uh, and get the other guy to come back. Right. Uh, sometimes it works. Um, and and perhaps I mean I, I don't know maybe maybe uh, we will see this working here. The, the the issue I think that we've got with this one is, um, if I'm the Iranians and I'm, I'm bargaining on this, uh, the U.S. walking out of the deal doesn't doesn't dramatically affect. Uh, I mean I've, the Iranians have already gotten in large part uh, the benefit of the deal, right? They they got the uh, oh I disagree. The, the, but they've I, gotten I the frozen saying. assets, and they've gotten well. They've gotten the rest of the world uh, to to relieve them from sanctions. So even if the U.S. reimposes sanctions, uh, they still have the Europeans and so forth. But they um, don't necessarily business with. That's the problem because of how how the financial system is set up. Essentially, those sanctions make it incredibly difficult for any European country to do business with them because of the financial flows through the U.S. system, and that ties into you know the dollar being the world reserve currency and all that sort of thing. So really, it's not just one country pulling out. It's the linchpin of the international financial system pulling out and not allowing access to that system. So this is a this is a huge deal, you know. So that that's why I'm saying that it has definitely the potential to scuttle the entire thing. We'll we'll see. My my sense is that they can work out some sort of workarounds or um again there's there will be sort of some fuzzy enforcement and and it's one thing for us to really push hard on uh, the Iranians it's another for us to push hard on our allies on those issues um so i i'd say we'll see how that plays out but no look i i i would agree with you that uh i think the you know i'm out of here uh sort of um uh that that taking that uh that position um uh doesn't necessarily advance the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it does potentially advance the ball in one particular instance, in terms of the long-term consequences, you have to consider those. And I just think that uh, Donald Trump might be smart sometimes tactically, but I think in terms of strategically, bigger picture thinking, it's just not something he's ever had to do. And especially when you're talking about geopolitics, that's just out of his, significantly out of his skill set, I would say. All right. Well, let's move on to another uh, international uh, issue, not crisis, actually, but uh, North Korea, where we now finally know the where and when 
of the North Korea summit. It is going to be, uh, what is it, June 12th June in, 12th, in Singapore. Yeah. And the president made the announcement on Twitter shortly after welcoming home those three American prisoners that North Korea had been holding as alleged spies. Right. Um, now, the president, who obviously in the not too distant past referred to Kim as, you know, a little rocket man and all that kind of bellicose sort of stuff. And, and, and as you'll recall, had, you know, a number of people fearing it, uh, seriously an imminent we were heading to this. The the, uh, the atomic scientist moved the clock forward. Exactly, that, uh, you know, we and so Armageddon. But now he's taken a very different tone, right? Saying, you know, very nice and complimentary things and saying that, you know, both he and Kim will try to make their meeting a very special moment for world peace. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, North Korea summit? Anything that we knew or, you know? Well, you know, here's the thing. And I think this is this is interesting when you you compare it to the, the Iran situation, because you and I both said um, back, what, three, six months ago, when uh, Trump was was making these statements and calling him rocket man and saying our our you know buttons bigger than yours and and so forth, uh, the foreign policy establishment and uh, all right thinking people uh, sort of just just shook their heads and said, oh my God, this is terrible. This is this is not how you conduct a diplomacy. Uh, you're dealing with a madman. You can't say these things. This will lead us to war, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are. Uh, we've got. Uh, you know, hostages released. We've got a summit on the a date on the table. Now, I, I do want to uh, clarify that I'm not saying that. You know, I, I don't. We don't know everything that that has gone on uh, in terms of of uh, getting the hostages out. What's been reported is that there was no quid pro quo. There was no um, you know advance agreement for anything. Um, likewise, we don't know. Uh, if the summit might turn out to be sort of uh, a big bust and just sort of a a Kim uh, PR move, um, that that nothing will get will get done. Um, but if if the the establishment argument before was, you know, Trump doing these things is is going to exacerbate tensions, lead us to war, that doesn't seem to have been the case, and and maybe. You know, maybe he's just crazy enough, uh, you know, for lack of a, a better word. I mean, because, you know, we, we've had many other presidents who have who have tried to deal with the Kim regime. Now, again, it was a different Kim uh, uh, in most most of that time. Um, uh, but uh, no, I, I think that's I think that's fascinating that, um, you know, in, in this case, maybe maybe this sort of thing has 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 worked or and again this is something else we we don't know just because we don't know yet uh behind the scenes diplomacy by uh, mike pompeo um you know while he was cia director and, and now a secretary of state maybe that's had the bigger impact uh, as opposed to the trump tweets uh we we can't know because again north korea is is such a isolated sort of uh, place and, and no one knows what goes on there much less what goes on in kim's mind um, but but the results are, are are interesting, and I would say not what was expected. Yeah, I I would echo essentially everything you said. And uh, again, it seems like the administration has a, a appropriate degree of skepticism about what might come out of it. At least we've heard that from a number of, of top figures. And one thing that I'll just add that's sort of semi related is it, it sure is different 
for President Trump now to have a secretary of state who he trusts, you know, who he feels comfortable with. And, and Tillerson was one of that kind of that first wave. We're talking about first and second waves already, which says a lot about the Trump administration. But, but the idea that he was one of those administration-y type people who really didn't fit in with kind of the Donald Trump style and worldview and that. And, you know, I, so I think Mike Pompeo might actually be an upgrade at Secretary of State, not just because Donald Trump trusts him a lot more, but also I wanted to point out something we won't get into in detail, but Pompeo actually seems to think that the State Department matters and that it should have employees and ambassadors and things like that, whereas Tillerson was not really so much for that sort of thing. He's Pompeo has uh, released a, a big hiring freeze and done some other things to seem that he actually understands the importance of the State Department as an instrument of foreign policy, whereas Rex Tillerson, eh, not not so much, it seems. So I, I think this is an area to be cautiously optimistic in. Yeah, yeah. And again, we wait and see how it how it plays out. Um, at the end of the day, you could one could argue uh, Kim comes away with the victory because he gets the big upfront summit and we're talking to him, whereas before we wouldn't talk to him at all. Um, but uh, uh, there are also the other interesting piece is that it was it was really shortly after uh, the, the you know the Trump tweets the crazy Rocket Man stuff um, that there was this uh, thaw between the North and the South uh, in terms of of you know initiating contact and and that has has also moved forward and that's going to be a piece of, of any puzzle uh, here um, because because whatever whatever agreement supposing there's agreement to be had on nuclear weapons, a big part of that is going to have to be an opening up of the North so that there can be some sort of um, yeah. legitimate inspection regime. That is going to be uh, and that, and really, that, really difficult. And that, I think, is necessarily dependent on the relationship with, with the South, right? I mean, if, if, we, if there was still a militarized border, um, uh, and and it's it you know then there's there's really no no inspection regime that can that can do anything. Uh, so these are all pieces, and and it seems to be moving in in the right direction. We'll see what happens. Absolutely, still very very early days. All right, uh, moving on. You know, career CIA operative Gina Haspel, President Trump's choice to lead the agency, testified on Capitol Hill this week. Uh, now, now there's in my mind, and I think in most people's minds, there's no question about Haspel's her knowledge or her competence. And I say that because, of course, these are issues that have, well, frequently come up with other Trump nominees. This isn't an issue here, but her confirmation isn't entirely assured because of those concerns about her role in what, well, some will call it torture. Others will refer to it more uh, euphemistically as enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, now, in her testimony, Haspel stated that she would follow the law concerning interrogations, even in the event that President Trump were to ask her to act illegally in order to extract information, which, you know, given the president's previous statements concerning, you know, what he believes to be the effectiveness of torture, and, and that's another area where the president believes one thing and most experts disagree, that isn't too difficult to uh, imagine, but another point. 
But despite claiming that she has a strong moral compass and wouldn't do anything immoral, even if it was in fact legal, she wouldn't take a position on the morality of waterboarding or any of those other enhanced interrogation techniques previously you know, documented to be used by the agency, like keeping people awake for up to a week at a time, extended periods in what are called stress positions, uh, rectal rehydration, and, and, and things like that. Now, Senator John McCain, who knows a lot about torture because he experienced it firsthand as a Vietnam POW, said, Ms. Haspel's role in overseeing the use of torture by Americans is disturbing. Her refusal, her refusal to acknowledge torture's immorality is disqualifying. Now, I'm with Senator McCain on this one, Jay. Uh, what about you? I think your mistake is is looking at this uh, on, on the merits. Um, that this is actually a discussion about uh, either her qualifications or her position on um, uh, enhanced interrogation. I think this is a matter of she's facing um, a confirmation fight because she is Trump's nominee. Uh, if you remember a week or two ago, there was a confirmation fight on Mike Pompeo. Uh, this is this is just sort of a Democrat resistance. Uh, anybody Trump nominates now, they will seek to oppose. Um, it's also, I think, instructive to look back on when we talk about enhanced interrogation and so forth, the people who knew about it, the people who were briefed on it, the so-called congressional gang of eight, uh, of, of whom many were Democrats and who are now screaming that this is horrible, a, a new and approved uh, what was going on. Uh, the She was a, um, I don't want to say underling, uh, but she was she was not the decision maker. Uh, at the CIA, and there was legal clearance. Um, uh, it had been vetted. It had been approved by Congress. Uh, so I, I think taking her to task uh, on these issues now uh, is is just a way of of taking a shot at Trump. Uh, likewise, you know, John McCain will will never miss the opportunity to take a shot at Trump. Um, you know, his concerns may be, uh, you know, certainly real, but I, I don't, let's put it this way. I, I don't see any evidence that, um, Haspel would, uh, violate the law, would do something that, uh, uh something the, the president instructed her to that, that she believed violated the law, uh, or that, that she would somehow, you know, campaign to, you know, Bring bring back torture or something like that. I, I I'm just not seeing this. Uh, it looks to be that, that she is a eminently qualified person. Uh, she would be the first woman CIA director, um, which again for all the all the, the 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 you know wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth we have over Trump and women. Here we have a, a strong woman um, who is perhaps being criticized for being too strong, uh, stepping into a, a really vital role. And um, uh, I, I think it's I think this is uh, more about Trump than it is about uh, Haspel. Hmm. I, you know, I certainly agree to the extent that, uh, uh, you know, Senator McCain and, and President Trump uh, don't have exactly a uh, very cordial past. But I also think that torture has been an issue understandably a very personal uh, issue for Senator McCain for a long time now. And it's not just been a Donald Trump type issue. I would have expected him to come out 
strongly uh, in this same way, regardless of who had been president, if that person had nominated someone who had taken part in that. And okay, on one hand, but if, but if that's the test, I mean, doesn't that doesn't that disqualify uh, you know, pretty much any CIA employee uh, from you know the past? You know, 20 years, 30 years. Not necessarily. I mean, there are there are certainly employees who didn't have that direct connection to those activities, though it certainly would. You're right. It would disqualify many of them. And I think, you know, well, you could argue rightly so. Now, in one sense, I'd say, OK, she was sort of taken down a path to put her in a no win situation. Right. Because you say, well, you know, uh, if, when she said she wouldn't do anything immoral, even if it was legal, well, of course, right then, then the next question that any of these, you know, attorneys right in, you know, in, in Congress, which is full of attorneys would ask, right, as well. So then you think that uh, you think that these enhanced interrogation techniques must have been they, they must be moral, right? Because you did them and you said you wouldn't do anything immoral, even if it's legal. And then that gets into the whole argument, which is why she didn't answer that question directly. She answered like a, well, like a bureaucrat, essentially. But my, I guess my larger point is this is yet another tone deaf nomination by the Trump administration. So, I mean, just why would you, there are plenty of qualified people not plenty. I mean, it's not like there are thousands of qualified people, right? But there are, you know, there are certainly, I'm willing to bet, dozens of qualified, at least a dozen qualified people who could run the CIA. They should go to the, what's, what was the, uh, what were the, who were the guys we used to advertise for? Um, ZipRecruiter, yeah. ZipRecruiter, exactly. But, but, but I mean, but I mean, and, and oftentimes, in fact, there's a tradition of CIA directors coming from outside of the agency. Right. Just like, uh, well, just right. like Mike Pompeo. Sort of, so yes, forth. Sort of so knowing the sensitivity of this issue and rightly so, I think the sort of things that we engaged in these these, well, I'll call them torture techniques were were just morally repugnant and nominating someone who had a direct supervising role in this, I think it's just it's just an awful thing. I don't think she should have been nominated in the first place. And if I were in a position to vote, I certainly wouldn't vote to confirm her. Well, I and and you know who else wouldn't vote to confirm her, uh, and who has has made um, uh, statements that he wants to come before uh, uh, the Senate to uh, testify is uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, also not a fan. Um, uh, it's it's been uh, read that maybe the the absolute most the best thing that could ever be done for for Haspel would be to bring in Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, to uh, testify against her. Um, uh, again, I would be I would be comfortable with her as our, our CIA director, um, and uh, I, I understand where this is this is a, we can have a difference of opinion. But again, I don't think this is so much a, uh, a merits issue as is just a um, uh, a, a Trump nominated her issue. I, I wouldn't have cared if if uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or anyone would have nominated somebody like this. To me, it's oh, a, know, it's I a know, moral you, issue. You wouldn't you wouldn't have you wouldn't have. But I think most of the and quite honestly, I would say, though, uh, most of the folks uh, had Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama nominated her. Uh, my point is, you might still be be making those objections. I don't think the um, the people who are making those objections now would be making them. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. They, and and again, yeah, as these are folks point. who signed off on the sure. waterboarding back in the day. Sure. First place, fair so. point. Fair point. 
Right. Well, what about some domestic politics? Uh, you know, on Tuesday, the, the 2018 election season began, I had more or less in earnest, we have primaries in four Republican-leaning states. We had Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, and North Carolina. And, you know, I'm sure listeners know Republicans have only a 51 to 49 advantage in the Senate. So I thought we'd focus on the three Senate election states, because all of them have imperiled Democratic incumbents who are defending their seats, starting with Ohio. Now, Ohio is kind of different because the focus there was on the governor's race. I have to mention that because, of course, one of my favorite all-time people in politics, former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau yeah. head Rich Cordray, uh, he turned back a challenge on his left flank from former congressman and Cleveland boy mayor back in the late 70s, Dennis Kucinich, to win the nomination. Well, enthusiast, yeah, that's right. He has a, if, if you ever want a fascinating, fascinating history, Dennis Kucinich, absolutely. Um, now, in November, Cordray is going to face off against, well, the guy who beat him in the 2010 attorney's general, attorney, sorry, attorney general's race, and that's Mike DeWine. Um, but in the Ohio Senate race, we have Democratic incumbent Sherrod Brown, and he ran unopposed, as one might expect. And on the Republican side, Congressman um, Jim Bernassi defeated uh, Mike Gibbons, who I believe is a Cleveland area businessman for the— Mike Gibbons, and there, was like, there was a handful of other, uh, other um, uh, also-ran opponents that he had uh, in, that, uh, in that race. So I know, Jay, you are certainly— keyed into Ohio politics. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the, the primaries in, in, well, in our Well, you know, I, my first thought, well, again, I, I'd say I, it, you and I, some, some maybe in the afternoon, we have, we could have some uh, great uh, stories about our experiences with Dennis Kucinich. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. There was, there was a, in a class where he and uh, uh, former city councilman George Forbes almost came to blows and uh, Mike and I sort of like sitting in the middle of it all. Well, it was, the best uh, class I ever had in college. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but uh, in, in any event, um, um, and, and also in 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 uh, fairness and full disclosure, uh, uh, Congressman Kucinich and I have uh, clashed publicly on occasion, uh, all in all in good fun and uh, so forth. But um, I think the the primaries, for the most part, in Ohio particular, and I would say in, in the other states, look to me to be sort of a return to normalcy. Um, I mean, looking at those races, it's sort of the people who I thought would win won uh, by about the margins that I thought they would. Uh, and it was sort of a, a you know, establishment sort of victory. Now, you can say Rich, Cord Rich, Cord Rich Cordray is uh, further left for the establishment than uh, what you would typically see, uh, but certainly not as far left uh, as, as Dennis Kucinich. Uh, likewise, Renacy, who was, there's a, a little bit of an interesting backstory there, too. He was sort of a uh, I don't want to say last minute replacement, but originally the candidate was going to be uh, state treasurer Josh Mandel, uh, who chose not to run uh, because of some some personal family reasons. Uh, and um, so Renacy uh, stepped in. Uh, Renacy was a, a a Trump favorite and Trump populist, a former uh, car dealer. Um, so again, perhaps he's a little more populist than than your typical uh, conservative. Uh, or your typical Republican, um, but the the folks who were trying to, in some some cases, out Trump Trump, uh, did not win. 
uh, either in Ohio or West Virginia. Yeah, especially I want to mention West Virginia because uh, Don Blankenship, that you know, c- convicted criminal, coal baron guy who was saying crazy stuff about Mitch McConnell. Even, I mean, even President Trump tweeted, "Don't vote for this guy." Essentially, so uh, and that obviously is a big disappointment to Democrats, especially you know Joe Manchin, who's. I mean, technically, he's a Democrat, but he's holding on by the skin of his teeth and tries to vote as Republican as he can kind of get away with, basically. I mean, that's going to be the, the Haspel nomination. Yeah, that's going to be a that's going to be a really tough race, certainly. And it would have been a lot easier if Blankenship had won. But instead, he's going to be facing um, right now. The guy is currently the attorney general of West Virginia, Patrick Patrick Morrissey. So Morrissey. Yeah. And, and then you had Indiana. Uh, and, Not to and, be confused with the. The mopey British no, singer, definitely not right. Different so, guy, but but you know, in in Indiana, Joe Donnelly, who's he's a Democratic incumbent, and he's for a while been considered one of the most uh, in danger Democrats running for re-election. And uh, uh, there was there was uh, on the primary side for the Republicans, that was one of the most expensive and nasty primaries. I don't know if that's going to necessarily help Donnelly a whole lot, but that was kind of a surprise because it was sort of a newcomer, Mike Braun, who kind of pulled off a, an upset, essentially, beating more established, two more established people, both representatives uh, in the House, uh, uh, Messer and uh, Rakita. So, I don't know if that helps a lot. Certainly, that doesn't necessarily hurt uh, a whole lot. But still, I think Donnelly's going to be lucky if he can pull out a victory there. Yeah, but but to me, there were, there were not any big. And you, you mentioned the Braun situation, but he's not necessarily an outsider. Outsider, right? He's um, not a nut the, kind the, of blanket. In the extent kind of. that that uh, Blankenship was exactly, and and so to me, if the Trump year was sort of the year of hey, it's it's the outsiders, it's the. Uh, you know, the non-establishment people in this case, I mean, I guess my point is for the most part, the establishment, uh, won and, uh, uh, you know, albeit you can say the establishment on both sides, uh, is maybe has, has shifted a, a little bit, but, uh, it was, it was not surprising. Let's put it that way yeah. to me. Yeah. And th- this doesn't change, and which, 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 which also shouldn't be surprising if you're talking about primaries, which are in large part, uh, controlled by to some extent the establishment. I mean that's that's why they're the establishment. So right. yeah, and this this doesn't change my sort of general expect expectations about what's going to happen in November. Uh, really, really at all, essentially. So, well, you know, Donald Trump. You you recall candidate Trump talking about draining the swamp as president? Sound yes. familiar? Yeah. You know, it it seems to me so far that that doesn't exactly seem to be happening. I think the phrase is you come in wanting to drain the swamp and the swamp drains you. I don't know. I think I argued Donald Trump is the swamp. But anyway, this week, right, it was revealed that former Trump personal attorney Michael Cohen, that's the guy who paid, of course, famously $130,000 in hush money to former porn star Stormy Daniels. And by the way, Jay, I want to point out, star. I checked, former is a fair description. Uh, IMDB, the Internet Movie Database, says that she hasn't appeared in a porn movie in several years. Which is like a lifetime in in that particular uh, uh, cinematic uh, feel, genre. I guess you could say. Yeah, genre. Thank you. Um, and it turns out, of course, that we found this week that actually Cohen has a maybe she's just maybe she's just waiting for the right project. Uh, you never can tell, huh? But uh, you know, Cohen has a fairly impressive. Well, he's put together a fairly impressive list of contacts with the swamp, right? I mean, uh, we found out this week he's taken in millions of dollars from various corporate interests. Uh, They include 
AT&T, Korea Aerospace Industries, the drug giant Novartis, and an American subsidiary of a company that's owned by a Russian oligarch close to President Vladimir Putin. Now, of course, the companies involved say, oh, no, we didn't hire Michael Cohen to lobby. And, and that's an important point, actually, because if they did... There's a regulatory scheme exactly. for lobbyists. Exactly. Not only yes. did he have to register as a lobbyist, but he also has to disclose clients and income, which, of course, he, he didn't do. Now, here's my take on this, Jay. I think Cohen is just yet another one of the many, many schemers and scammers that Donald Trump has surrounded himself with, not just in his presidency or his candidacy, but really for his entire adult life. Um, I don't know that what Cohen did is a whole lot worse than what so many other people like him do all the time. And that's both on the left and the right, I should point out, though. Oftentimes there's more money in it on the right a little bit. But this happens in Washington every day. That said, the one thing that does potentially disturb me is finding Yet another Russia link here. I mean, President Trump keeps on claiming that there's no collusion between his campaign and Russia. And I've said this a bunch of times before. I'll say it again. I wouldn't be surprised if the president himself wasn't directly involved in any of this. But this is yet another piece of evidence suggesting a lot of ties between people in the president's orbit. Uh, people who have his, you know, have his ear, who talk to him on a regular basis, and Russia, which, by the way, is a, you know, a hostile foreign power. So that's my take on all this. Uh, Jay, what do you think about Michael Cohen's shenanigans? I, I think you're mostly right. Uh, I think he is. This is a a situation of he's he's trying to cash in, um, and this happens every election. People cash in. People cash out. Um, there was a, a, a good story and I think it was maybe even the New York times, um, about, uh, uh, the Podesta firm and the name is escaping me right now, not John Podesta, the brother. Um, uh, but how it, it they went from the, the absolute heights, um, of, of high living, uh, up until, uh, the day before <laughs> the, the election, uh, and and now and just just absolutely crashed. I mean, because the, he was selling his access to Hillary Clinton, uh, he was banking on that uh, that that she would be the president, and and corporate America uh, largely signed on to that. Um, there there's often this this idea that that corporate America is somehow uh, conservative. Um, uh, that's not really the case. They are they are pragmatic and uh, you know I, I guess sort of sort of craven <laughs> if anything. There's not there's no real principles involved. It's it's uh, you 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 do whatever you have to do, um, and and there are people out there uh, and um, uh, Cohen is is jump jumping in this and it's kind of funny because again Cohen is someone who didn't really do this before. Uh, and all of a sudden uh, says, OK, here, I've, I've got this uh, uh, sort of lottery ticket. And my sense is the people who were paying him did not get much bang for their buck. Um, and and it's I, I think it's it, it's it's telling that uh, uh, these companies would would pay this kind of money. Um, and it happens under under either either circumstance. Um, it's also kind of, I mean, a little bit funny, a little bit ironic, the uh, AT&T um, you know, folks who hired him, you know, are now have been fired. Um, 
which to me is a little bit a little bit sad because it's one of those look it seemed like a good idea at the time and in my my sense is uh people were probably all on board and thought this was a great idea uh when it came up and then all of a sudden here he is with stormy d and it's it's less of uh, uh less less fitting with with their corporate image um so I mean that's I mean I guess here's my thing is is it looks like these folks he was trying to sell influence people were trying to buy influence uh, I don't know if anybody actually got any influence though um, given uh, Trump's position on the uh, the AT and T merger uh, I mean it, it seems like he hasn't really if they if they if they paid him this they I think they certainly overspent well I don't you know I I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I would say one thing I'll point out is that in terms of overspending, what they, what these companies in turn, what these companies paid Cohen was, was a pittance. It was like, you know, pocket change for them essentially. And they just figured, well, what the heck? We'll, we'll throw some money his way. And that's what they do. They throw, throw money all over the place. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. More often than not, it does. Influence peddling is, in fact, entirely bipartisan. And that's why the swamp is so hard to drain because everyone, almost everyone loves the swamp. And this is one of these weird issues where the far left and the far right are very much together on this. You talk to someone like Bernie Sanders, you talk to the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus folks, and they are pretty much in agreement on this sort of thing. And they could form some sort of extremist coalition against crony capitalism for all the good it would do them. Well, you know, something else I, I do want to mention, though, if the attack is on, uh, I, I think there there are a lot of attacks that could be lobbed at Trump on uh, his, his just poor judgment with who he surrounds himself with. Um, and that, that Cohen, you know, for... Cohen appears to be a little more 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 craven in this than the second time we use that word um, than than others, but I don't know that necessarily reflects on Trump as being uh, pro swamp because uh, again I, I don't know that uh, if if there were evidence that he somehow you know told these companies hey you ought to go pay Mike Cohen and I'd be happy to talk to you that would be a, a huge tremendous uh, legal problem ethical problem and political problem, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any. Uh, of that, even even an allegation of that, uh, and it looks like this is this is just kind of Cohen trying to cash in on his own, um, uh, and it's it's unclear whether Trump knew anything about it uh, or, uh, you know, that, that there was any actual. And lastly, on on the Russian piece, I'm going to take the opposite tack. And again, everyone everyone gets mad at me if I say there's there's no collusion. Um, but uh, well, I think though. Let, so, let me just say, I think what people get upset no about collusion. and you're right there's we, there's a lot of this that that we hear in facebook and and listener comments and so forth i think what people get upset about is that you're not even willing to entertain the possibility that given all these things that are happening that maybe there's something fishy with all of this smoke maybe there's a possibility that there's a little bit of fire here that that's my sense of it anyway i i think i think there is something fishy but i, I don't see that it is it is collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. I think there are it is like Michael Cohen who is trying to cash in uh, with whatever Michael Flynn trying to cash in on on certain um, constituencies that that he's had. Uh, so to the extent that's shady, yes. Um, but I would argue if you have a Russian oligarch uh, paying Michael Cohen, to me that's that's a piece of evidence that goes against any sort of. Uh, collusion with the president to, uh, you know, if, if, if by what, by what it meant is collusion is that, uh, Hey, Hey Trump, um, 
we'll help get you elected by, you know, floating 3000 Facebook ads uh, and, and publish some fake news. And then you do us a favor. Um, I, I don't I don't uh, see that because if if that were the case, um, when Michael Cohen came knocking at the Russian oligarch's door, I, w- I would think their response would be, "We already paid, um, go away." So I that to me that's that's a I, I think it's I think it's I think it's shady and and it shows that uh, uh, Cohen is is sort of maybe a shady character who's willing to sell his services to anyone. Um, uh, or, or his lack of services to anyone. Um, I, I don't, I don't see it as uh, uh, evidence that the Russians colluded with the Trump campaign to change the outcome of the election. You know, I, I think, and listeners might be surprised. I think Jay, that you and I are actually closer together on this issue than a lot of people would suspect. Because how I see that, I guess a lot comes down to what you mean by the word collusion. And and right. I think you're right. At least I think there's a good chance that you're right, that if by collusion, we mean a quid pro quo agreement where top Trump people got together with with Putin, Russian government representatives and say, you give us this money, we'll do X, Y, Z in policy for you. I don't, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but I think that that's probably not the most plausible thing that happened. I sort of think along the lines that you're suggesting that you have these people who are more craven than your typical top administration folks right. for various reasons. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with who President Trump is as a person, uh, morally, ethically, all that sort of thing. But who just said, well, we'll take money for anyone. We don't care. Just if it's money, yeah, no, if you're, I, is no, your money I, green, I, I, no, we'll I take think, it. I think that's, that's exactly right. I think there may have been you know, if you had a more establishment candidate and you get the phone call from the uh, the Russian lawyer or whoever, uh, they might say whether from principle or just from experience, they might say, "No, we're not taking that meeting. We're not. We're not going to do that." Um, they might have uh, paid closer attention to uh, Michael Flynn's um, uh, contacts. Uh, they certainly would have paid more attention to Paul Manafort's contacts. But I, I think you're right. There were these these sort of shady kind of characters. Um, uh, who the Russians knew were shady characters, and they, I think, quite rightly thought, "Hey, we should <laughs> let's let's see what we can do." Now, I, like again, I, um, uh, so uh, yeah, we'll see we'll see how this plays out. But yeah. and again, maybe I'm I'm taking a more to me, I guess what, what's what's frustrating is is that there is this idea that uh, anytime there's a contact between anyone and and a Russian, it's 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 collusion, and and that's not it. I mean, there are uh, quite legitimate contacts, and I think some of the Flynn conversations with uh, Krislov, um, you know, would fall into that category. Uh, and there are other stuff that's just you know typical shady stuff. I mean, uh, but but it's not the same as to say. Uh, the Russians uh, put Trump in office and Trump knew it. That's right. right. I, I would say that it's fair to say that uh, the Trump administration has uh, or people around again, surrounding the president have uh, accepted or entertained overtures from Russian businesses and government officials to an extent that a more normal traditional standard ethical right. administration would not. And I think that that's a basic point of agreement that you and I have. And now in terms of what that means legally and was there a quid pro quo, that's, uh, that's of course what, what Robert Mueller is looking into. Yep. 
All right. Well, it, it is, you know, it's time for what we're reading, where we step back from all this weekly craziness and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things maybe that we're reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Jay, you know, I realized I screwed up last week. Uh-oh. Last Not week, you. Uh, it happens every once in a while. Last week, we did the show as we as we do on a Saturday. That that was Saturday, May fifth. Now, of course, that's Cinco de Mayo, but that's not the real political importance. I would say that was the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. I let oh, it go yeah. completely unmentioned. Happy birthday, Karl! You know, um, and in so to make up for that, this week I have not one, not two, but three. Very good articles about why Marx still matters. One of them is called Why the Specter of Marx Still Haunts the World. Um, I kind of like that. The second one is Rulers of the World. That's, read that's taken Mar- from the, the first line of the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, I, I need that, know that, Jay. Uh, you know, there's a specter haunting Europe, yes. <laughs> and the second one is uh, Rulers of the World, Read Karl Marx. And finally, from the New York Times, President Trump's favorite paper, Happy Birthday, Karl Marx. You were right. <laughs> So, as you would expect from the New York Times. There you go. But, uh, but yeah, no, they're all, you know, and I think uh, a lot of, I think Marx gets, well, Marx is often caricatured, I, I think, understandably so. He's an incredibly complex thinker and so forth. But I would argue, and a lot of people on the left would argue, is even though, even if he, Marx got some big things wrong, and I'd say he certainly did, there are actually plenty of things that he got right and plenty of ways in which parts of his thought are still incredibly relevant to today, especially to folks on the left. And so I would definitely encourage you to check out the, uh, any or all of these three articles, which I thought were, were very worthwhile. Jay? Wow. Well, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, you can't just throw car marks out there and not expect me to. No, no, of course not. I, you know, I, I mean, I mean, I would just say that the, you know, probably the the twenty some million who who uh, died under Stalin, and the you know maybe fifty million who died under Mao, uh, two million who died under Pol Pot would would uh, beg to differ on on uh, uh, you know how much how much good Karl Marx did for everybody. And that's not um, what I'm saying, though, and you know that, right? right? I understand. Okay, I just but want to I, point I out. think you, if if you don't want to look at his his legacy, so to speak, um, uh, but in some respects, I, I, I will agree with you. Um, first of all, I think everybody should read Marx, uh, just because, uh, again, of, of all those millions of people who died and, and realizing that, that this ideology, uh, has informed much of what happened in the last, uh, last century, um, last century and a half, let's say. Uh, and, and also, I would agree with you in some ways, Marx is correct in diagnosing the problem, uh, right? Um, I think he's he's wrong in prescribing the solution, though. No, I think there's something. I mean, I his, say, yeah, his, yeah. his problem he recognizes right. is, is economic inequality and there are class systems and so forth. And his solution is communism. Um yeah, I think he's. I think like a lot of thinker, political thinkers, he's a lot better at, like you say, diagnosing the problem than implementing a solution. That's always the hard part, right? Certainly, but but yeah, and I should point out that Marxism, as an ideology, is practiced in these you know totalitarian, authoritarian states in the twentieth and even into the twenty first centuries, has been an utter disaster for human freedom, dignity, uh, progress, and any other thing. I think just absolutely, I totally agree with you. So I'm not talking about communism as an ideology, which I am 
strongly and fully against. I'm just talking about Good to hear. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, elements of Marxist thought that can be that can be considered and used in ways that might be helpful in the context of uh, a 21st century capitalism, I would say. Right. No, I would say Marxist Marxism is sort of is, is a historical analysis tool. Yeah. Sure, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so my, my uh, thing, um, and this is going to surprise people, but I'm, I'm kind of using it as, as a, a negative example of uh, something I read and, and, you know, eh, maybe I don't say wish I didn't, but uh, uh, <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, in the uh, Atlantic, uh, I, I believe, uh, take on uh, Kanye West. All right. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I mentioned this, this is not something I typically would even have, have read, but for that there was such a dust up over this. Um uh, Kanye West uh, made some tweets about a week or so ago that are uh, were complimentary, even sort of in a vague, bizarre way of uh, President Trump, uh, sort of indicating that uh, uh, he likes Trump because they they both have dragon blood, um, <laughs> you know, and and so forth. Oh um, God! Which I think wasn't that a Charlie Sheen thing? Also, wasn't I think that one so? Of his, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a, that's, a, that's, um, a, that's a heck of a trio there. <laughs> So, you know, t- to me, if if you're looking to Kanye West for, uh, you know, serious political analysis, you're probably looking in the wrong place. Amen. And and I, you know, so I, I think about about the same of Kanye West as, as I did when, you know, he made the statement that, you know, we had Katrina happened and all that because George Bush hates uh, uh, black people. Uh, or when he, you know, jumps up uh, to, uh, you know, say the Beyonce video was better than Taylor Swift. I mean, I, you know, I but. But the fact that uh, Coates, um, who is is largely lauded as sort of you know leading black intellectual, uh, uh, took on, took this on at length, um, I, I think is telling, and I think it's it's a little sad. Um, you know, Coates takes him to task, uh, you know, essentially being sort of sort of an Uncle Tom for uh, how dare you sort of you know betray your race by by saying something that. You know, again, Trump, Trump has dragon blood, which I don't even know what that means. Um, That's because you don't have dragon blood. That's the problem. I, I guess here, not. You know? um, uh, but, but to me, it, it it was it's such a frustration that um, you know we're never going to make any sort of progress racially if there is the test of any time someone um, uh, vaguely departs from the the, the party line that the, that the race line also has to be up the party line, so to speak. Um, uh, that they are somehow a, a race traitor and all this. Um, I think that's really disturbing and sad for uh, the country because otherwise I, I don't know how we're ever going to make any kind of progress. Um, and again, it's sort, of, it's sort of a weird thing of sort of like I'm, we're looking to the Kanye West of the world to uh, you know to, to, to bring discussion here. But but that's that's just the thing. If if you can't even have uh, Someone like uh, Kanye West, who, who again, I'll describe charitably, he's just kind of, you know, he's the goofball rapper, right? I mean, um, uh, megalomaniac, uh, sort of what you yeah, just said. But, but I mean, Trump, I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, it, it's it's um, that's that's troubling. So I I would say read that, um, and then also read uh, a lot of the criticism of it that that came from sort of all, all quarters about. Uh, why this is this is the wrong way to uh, uh, to go that that there is somehow this 
you know, idea that that uh, you would in, enforce that there is a there is one racial ideology that you know cannot be departed from, even uh, on something goofy like uh, uh, like saying Trump has dragon blood. All right, and we will of course have links to all of those things up in the show notes. And uh, also, I should mention before we close out today's episode. In fact, Jay and I are going to be recording our very first inaugural episode of our Politics Guys After Show uh, episodes that, that talk about uh, Goofy. I don't know if it'll be Goofy or not. We'll have to see. So, and again, that's something we're we're uh, putting out there uh, for all of our uh, sustaining supporters as uh, as as kind of a thank you. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you like what you heard. And, of course, listener support, that is what keeps the show going. We do appreciate it. If you want to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on support there in the menu that you'll see. Subscribing also really helps, as does sharing episodes, as does leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. It's mailapoliticsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We have pretty interesting discussions, I like to think, every day just about on that page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.